Okay, Paul began by introducing himself and introducing his gospel. And now, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, he's going to dive into the gospel full bore. And what we find is maybe a bit of a surprise. The gospel is good news, and this is a book of good news, and it's a Bible of good news, and Paul begins with very bad news. And again, it's a reminder to us that for people to see the goodness of the good news, they have to see the badness of sin. They have to see the wickedness of their own hearts, and they have to see more than that, that there's a consequence for our sin, namely the wrath of God. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the topic sentence for the next two chapters or so. God is angry with us. doesn't sound like a very contemporary message, but it's a biblical message. God is angry with sinners. Now, let me just ask you all, what does Paul mean when he uses the phrase, the wrath of God? Someone tell me, what does the wrath of God mean? Already given you a hint? Word that starts with A? Anger. God is angry. Does it mean that God is angry in the way that we get angry, that He is ready to explode on us? Clearly not, right? God is not sinful like we are. His anger is not a sinful anger. There's a possibility that we can be angry without sinning, the Bible says, but generally our anger is an explosive anger. You have offended me, and now I'm going to lash out at you. When we read about the wrath of God, that's not what we're speaking of. That's important. Ambition? He's ambitious for Christ because he wants Christ to rule as the Prince of Peace. That's right. Uh, It is a, a holy wrath, a good wrath. It's not a lashing out, but it's a settled response to sin. That's the phrase that you might want to remember. Wrath, when we speak of God, is His settled response to judge sin. So God doesn't explode. God isn't walking along one day and then just all of a sudden out of nowhere becomes very angry when He sees your sin. God's settled response, like a judge who has a list of sentences before Him for certain crimes, God has a settled response My response to all crimes against my name is wrath, which results in hell. It's not an explosive anger. It is a settled anger. And I I would just point out to you that the New Testament teaches wrath. Very often people have a misconception, people in churches by and large, that God in the Old Testament was really angry, and in the New Testament He's not so angry. Well, that's false on both accounts. We find that God was angry in the Old Testament, but that He was also merciful. Some of the great phrases and passages of mercy that we know from the Scriptures come from the Old Testament. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's Old Testament. And by the same token, when we get to the New Testament, we don't find that God has put aside His wrath and that now He's only gracious and compassionate. But we find in the New Testament that He is angry with sin as well. So the wrath of God, the settled indignation, the settled purpose to judge sin is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The word men there, I'm sure you realize, is not uh, a gender word. It's a word describing mankind. And so as he begins here, he is going to teach us that God's wrath is against all mankind. And then he's going to detail that in a few different groups of people as we move along. God is angry with humanity in general because men suppress the truth. That's what God is angry about. Men suppress the truth. Men know the truth about God, and we'll see that Paul argues that they do in verses 19 and 20. Men know the truth about God. Men know that there's a God in heaven who expects certain things. They don't know everything. If they don't have the Scriptures, certainly they don't know all that they ought to know. But they know enough. They know enough truth about God to purposefully rebel against it. And God is angry about that. It's important to note that God is angry because people suppress the truth, not because people hear the gospel and reject it. That's part of the suppression of truth. But we were damned before we ever heard the gospel. People who have never heard the gospel are damned because the knowledge that they do have of God, they've rejected and chosen to live on their own. So when we, again, tell someone the good news, we're not saying God is going to send you to hell if you reject this. What we're saying is, you're already headed to hell because you, like me, are a sinner who's rejected what you do know about God. If you reject this, that will only add to your rap sheet. But we go to hell not because we reject the gospel, but because we reject God. Because we reject God. And he explains then how we've done that in verses 19 through 21. First, he's going to go back and make sure that we understand that human beings, all mankind, really knows God in some way. And he does that in verse 19 and in verse 20 by saying, because they suppress the truth, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Let's start with that phrase, because that which is known about God is evident within them. That's the New American Standard. Who has the King James Version? Anyone? Read me verse 19 in the King James Version. I'll repeat it. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Okay, manifest in them, the King James, New American Standard, evident within them. Who has uh, the NIV? What does the NIV say in verse 19? But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come close to help me. Okay, that's... Yeah, I think you might be in a different oh, chapter. Well, you said 19 and 20. <coughs> I was using Psalms. Who has ESV? Anybody have an ESV? What does that say in verse 19? For what can be known oh, about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Okay, so ESV, I think the NIV, both instead of saying it's evident within them, say it's evident to them. There's a little bit of a, uh, of a debate on how this verse should be translated. I think that the King James in the NASB uh, have it right. So all of you who are fans of those versions will have um, things to, to stomp your feet about later. But what he's saying is, 
before he ever even talks about the creation that we can see outside of us, he's telling us that that which is known about God is evident within us. In other words, we come into the world with the stamp of God in some way imprinted on our souls. The book of Ecclesiastes speaks about this. It says that we were made with eternity in our hearts. That there's something in our hearts that knows that there's eternity, that there's something bigger, there's a greater purpose out there than us. Yes, sir? Does this have anything to do with uh, every man's been given a measure of faith? Well, I don't, think, I don't think that's what this is talking about. This is talking about just the fact that we know that there's a God. Because faith is that we actually apprehend and trust that God. Um, and here he's saying that we don't actually trust him uh, as we should. But Ecclesiastes says God's put eternity in the hearts of men. More than that, we can just observe human beings in every culture and know that there's something in us that knows that there's a power greater than us. If you go to any culture in the world, whether it's out in the jungle or whether it's a sophisticated, westernized culture, we call ourselves sophisticated anyway, there are certain things that everyone understands are right and wrong everywhere you go now that's not universal everyone doesn't understand that you should have only one wife which the bible teaches everyone doesn't understand that you should have only one god which the bible teaches but everyone understands if you have a wife someone else should not come along and take your wife right every culture knows that every culture knows that you shall not steal every culture knows that you shouldn't flee in battle and run away from your men whom you're supposed to be fighting with. Every culture knows that if I walk up to you and punch you in the nose, there's going to be a problem, right? Why is that? Why do these cultures, which for so long had no contact with one another, the Native Americans had no contact with the Chinese, ever. They had no contact with the Africans, ever. Why did these cultures, which had no contact with one another, and some of them which still have no contact with the outside world, all know that certain things are true because God has made it evident within them that there is a higher power that sets standards for our lives. Everyone, because of their conscience, that's what we call it, conscience, knows that there is a right and that there is a wrong. And if there's a right and a wrong, there has to be some moral being who created right and wrong. And because all the cultures have some of the same rights and wrongs, we know that it's not us who created it. There's someone greater than us. God has made Himself evident within us. We all have a conscience that knows certain things are right and wrong. And, he says in verse 20, we can also understand God through what has been made. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they... Mankind are without excuse. Now that's an interesting sentence. Just as an aside, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. No one's seen God at any time. But what Paul is saying here is, though we've never seen God, we can see God through what he's made. That's not to say that we look at a tree and say, that tree is God. Or we look at each other and say, you're a, you're a part of God. No, that's not what we believe. But we believe that we can look at one another, that we can look at trees, that we can look at snow, that we can look at the clouds, and we can say, there has to be someone bigger than us who made all this. There has to be. Yes, sir? In the Valley of Vision, which is Isaiah 22, um, they talked about the forests of Israel. That's right. And we can look at the forests and see 
that there must be a God in heaven who created this. You can see it in big things like the universe. So many of you have been to the Creation Museum. Some of you have been there. If you've been there, uh, or if you haven't been there, you should go, and you should go into the planetarium where they give you about a 30-minute presentation on a domed roof, and you're flying through the universe seeing millions of stars and seeing how huge they are in comparison even to our sun. And it is incredible. I walked out of there uh, almost uh, feeling like I had to lay down because I was so amazed at how huge the universe is and that this tiny speck of earth is laying out in the middle of it with nothing holding us up but God. And you can see that there's a God even in the small things. The example that I always use is the human eye. Some of you may have studied biology extensively in school more than I did, but I know enough about the human eye to know that if you open up the human eye and you begin to look at all the rods and cones and lenses and all these things that have to work just right for you to see me clearly and see that my shirt is blue, see that my pants are tan, see that I'm wearing these dorky glasses that I have on, there has to be a God who made these eyes to work. That doesn't happen by accident, does it? It doesn't happen by accident. Evolution makes no sense when we just observe the facts. And that's what Paul is saying. Just observe the facts of the universe. Observe your conscience and observe the things that you can see that God has made and everyone knows that there's a God. The pagan in the jungle knows that there's a God. The person who's read the Scriptures knows that there's a God and everyone in between. That's why every place you go they have religion. Every place you go where the populace has decided what they will do religiously, they create a religion that has a God. It's only when an oppressive government comes in uh, and says, we're going to take God out of the religion that you have atheism. But every culture just left to itself has some conception of God or gods. And yet, verse 21, even though they knew God, I think we would say this, even though they knew there was a God, who made them and who owned them, who was bigger than them, who set standards for them, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. That's why we're damned. Not because we've heard the gospel and rejected it first, but because we've come into the world knowing that there is someone bigger than us by our conscience and by what we can see, and we choose not to live in the light of that. We choose to live all the time as though we were the big one in the universe, as though we were the one who was really in charge, as though we were the one who was at the center of things, as though we were the one who should get to call the shots. Now here in verse 21, you have the most root-level definition of sin in the whole Bible, I believe. We can talk about sin and we can say it's rejecting God's standards, it's breaking God's law, uh, it's doing that which we know is evil. It is all those things. But the most root-level definition of sin is, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. You can be keeping all the Ten Commandments and not be honoring God as you should. This is important because as believers, we want to do what's right. And we have certain standards in our lives that, by and large, we keep. But the issue is not whether we can keep a list of ten rules or fifty rules or a hundred rules. The issue is not whether we can read Romans 12 through 16 and see all the things that Paul tells us we ought to do and go out and do them. The issue is, every moment of every day, am I really honoring God and thanking God as much as I should? Answer, no, never, ever. I've never for five seconds honored God as much as I should. 
I can stand here and preach all day and talk about God all day, and in my heart there's still hidden selfishness and pride and sin, isn't there? Same thing with you. The issue with sin is not mainly what we do, it's what we are. And what we are is people who don't honor God as we should. Even when we're honoring Him, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. So we have a big problem. The problem is that all of us know that there's a God. All of us have an even greater understanding of God because we're opening His Word. All of you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. We know that there's a God. We don't honor Him as we should. We don't give thanks as we should. And we're without excuse. And so are those who don't have the Bible we have because they have conscience and they have creation. I heard a a well-known Baptist preacher on the radio some years ago uh, when I was in seminary preaching about missions. And I was listening and I was agreeing with what he was saying and he was telling us that we need to go out on the mission field. And then he paused in the middle of the sermon and he said, what about all those people who have never heard? Is God going to send them to hell because they've never heard? Of course not. And my heart just dropped. Because he didn't understand Romans 1. The issue is not whether we've heard the gospel. The issue is whether we have a conscience and whether we have eyes and ears to see and hear creation. And if we do, Romans 1.20 says we are without excuse. So the wrath of God, the reason for it, is first because men know God through creation and conscience. Second, because verse 18, they suppress the truth that they know. They push it down so they don't have to obey it. They don't have to bow to the truth. And because they suppress the truth, verse 21, they don't honor God or give thanks. And therefore, God has a settled purpose of indignation and judgment against us. Now, the question that Paul is going to turn to now is how does that look? How does our sin look? All of us suppress the truth. None of us honor God as we should. What does that look like? And what he's going to remind us, and I think mainly thinking about the religious element in his congregation that he's writing to here, what Paul is going to remind us is that it looks different in different sets of people. Sin, failure to honor God, failure to give thanks, doesn't look the same in every individual's life. And it doesn't look the same in every community of people. And what Paul's going to do here in the rest of chapter 1 and then in chapter 2 is lay before us three different sets of people and show how all three sets are sinners. He's going to lay before us pagans and their their issues, and that's going to be pretty obvious that these things are sin. But then secondly, he's going to lay before us upstanding citizens, people who think that they're doing the right things, people who are paying their taxes, doing what they're supposed to do, not creating a lot of trouble for anyone else, and he's going to say to them, you're just as sinful as the pagans are. And then thirdly, most pertinent for us, he's going to lay before us religious people. And he's going to say to religious people, you are sinners too. And just because you're religious, just because you have the name Jew, just because you go to church every week, doesn't mean that you're not just as bad off as the pagans are. So let's just briefly walk through this and notice these three sets of people. You will see uh, in your mind pictures of people you know. And in one of these three categories, you should see your own face in the mirror. Who are the objects of God's wrath? First, the pagans, chapter 1, verses 22 to 32, the pagans. Notice the two main sins of the pagans. First, idolatry. 
Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The first and most obvious evidence of sin is that instead of naming the true God, we create for ourselves false gods. In pagan society, they created statues. I was in India two years ago, and we would drive around, and the Indian Christian that was with me would say, See that tree? They worship that tree. You see that rock? They worship that rock. And on every corner, practically, in the little towns and villages, there would be little, uh, almost like walk-in closets with a gate in the front, kind of a door like is on the library here, where you can see in there, and there would be a statue of some kind in there. Sometimes it would be overlaid with precious metal. Sometimes it would just be wood. Sometimes it would be have tiles on top of it. But in every case, it was something that had eyes but couldn't see and ears but couldn't hear and a mouth but couldn't talk. And they called it God and they worshipped it and they brought little raisin cakes to lay in front of it. Apples and so on. That's the first sign of paganism. You exchange the true God for a false one. And then what follows, inevitably, is immorality. Immorality. Their women, this is verse 26, their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. If you have a false god, the first thing that falls in line behind that is immorality. You notice, when you hear the stories about the Greek gods and the Roman gods, that they're always gallivanting around and having affairs and, and crushing people and, and doing all sorts of wicked things for fun. Why do you think the Greeks and the Romans created gods like that? Because if that's what gods do, then that's what the people can do. And that's one of the reasons why people suppress the truth and create false gods is so that they can create a god in their image rather than having a God who's created them in His image and who says, Be holy because I'm holy. If we have a God who's unholy, then we can be unholy like He's unholy. And so idolatry is always followed by immorality. Yes? Given these um, descriptions about pagans, um, we think about our culture being a Christian culture. Would you think it would be a fair assessment to say we are moving or have become a pagan yeah, that's one of the things that I wanted to point out is that look at our culture and we see these verses playing out, don't we? And it's a sign. It's not as easy in our culture to see idolatry because we don't generally build statues, although more and more people, even sophisticated, university-trained, Western intellectuals are starting to worship statues and things like that. But with the immorality, we see that we are becoming, really have become a pagan culture. Um, and one of the things that I want to point out to you is that even in the church, even in people who have a much greater knowledge than the pagans do, a much greater knowledge than the Hindus in India have of God, what we see is ourselves gravitating towards idols. Now, one of the things that we see, and this is what most of us probably think of when we think of Christians or at least church folks gravitating towards idols is that I make an idol out of my car, I make an idol out of my job, I make an idol out of my paycheck, I make an idol out of my family, and so on. And that's true. But what I want to point out to you is that we see Christianity in the last 100 years, probably in the last 50 years, even more so, gravitating towards 
forms of worship rather than worshiping in spirit and in truth. We're not building statues, but what we are is we're building certain expectations for what has to happen for God to be there. There has to be a certain kind of music. There has to be a cross in the building. There has to be this. There has to be that. He has to wear this kind of clothes. They have to have that on. We gravitate towards forms of worship. And so what what's happening in our culture now is that you have a church for the cowboys and a church for white folks and a church for black folks, a church for blue-collar people, a church for white-collar people, a church for young people who like hip and cool music because I just can't worship with those old hymns, and churches for older people that have the hymns because I just can't worship with all these newfangled guitars. And what we're doing is instead of worshiping the one true God in spirit and truth, we're gravitating towards the forms. And we're making God to fit into our cultural paradigm, which is exactly what the Hindus have done, just in a less obvious way. And we create images of God. Now, the Catholic Church has always been famous for this. You go into a Catholic cathedral and they're going to have pictures of God and they're going to have pictures of Jesus and they're going to have pictures of Mary uh, and all these things. The Sistine Chapel, for instance, they've created a, a picture of God there sticking out his hand to Adam. Does God have a hand like that? Or did God speak Adam into existence? And didn't God say in the second commandment not to create visible images of him? And yet we find ourselves doing that, and, and not just in the Catholic Church, but in our own context as well. That's something that we could go on and on about. But you see it in Israel, too. Israel had the knowledge of the one true God. They didn't set up totem poles and say, this is Zeus, and this is Baal, and this is that, this, that, and the other. They eventually did that. But when Moses came down from the mountain, they knew that there was one true God. And they knew that God was invisible. And when Moses came down from the mountain, what had they done? They ripped their earrings out, thrown them in a pile, melted the gold down, and turned it into a golden calf. And Moses didn't say, here's Baal. Moses said, this is the Lord, the God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so even religious people who know that there's one true God find themselves gravitating towards, I've got to have something to go to. I've got to have a form of worship. I've got to have a kind of music. I've got to have a golden calf. I've got to have a picture on my wall that I can look out of Jesus when I pray so I can really think of him. And we're, we're all moving in the direction of the pagans because that's the natural bent of our hearts. That's why we need the gospel. Because our hearts bend towards creating God in our own image, making Him look, sound, feel like we want Him to feel. When you curse a Hebrew, you get the curse of God on you. Because God, you look back there in Genesis and you'll find out about what God said about those who curse the Hebrew. Well, and Jesus says if we call anyone a fool, that we're guilty of the fires of hell. So there's no favoritism with God. He wants us to treat all people with respect and dignity. And one of the ways that we don't do that is by leading them into idolatry. Now, the issue then is this with the pagans. They want a religion that pleases me. They want a religion that creates God in my image, and they create one, and they live accordingly. Homosexual, homosexuality flows out of that. But notice that Paul really sticks it to us in verses 28 and following. Because it's easy to read this, and Christians so often do and go, man, we're not like those people. 
We don't worship statues, and we're not homosexuals. But listen to verses 28 and following. Just as they, the pagans, did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed. If there's anyone greedy this morning, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. I wonder if you saw your face in the mirror of paganism here. This is paganism. Disobedience to parents is paganism. Arrogance is paganism. Greed is paganism. Envy is paganism. All of these things flow out of wanting God to be who we want Him to be so that we can do what we want to do. And if we live like this, we are under the just wrath of God. Now, perhaps we can read through that passage and say, man, I used to be like that, but I don't do those things anymore. I've cleaned up my act. Well, Paul has something to say to us as well, us upstanding citizens. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, as we said, we all sin. Our sins look differently. The pagan bows down to a statue. The upstanding citizen bows down to his credentials, his academic degree, his car, his house, his ability to control himself. We think that we're doing so well, and he says we're actually the same. We do the same things. We just do it in a little bit less obvious, more sophisticated way. We're just as greedy as the pagans. We're just as deceitful as they are. We're just deceitful to ladies and tell them how beautiful their dress is when really we're bitter inside about what they said last week. Different kind of lying. It's the same thing, though. What we need to do, what we need to realize is that uh, in our culture, uh, it would be good for us as Christians to step back from the groups of people who like to, to stand uh, on podiums and decry all the moral ills of our society. And it would be good for us to get into the crowd and realize, man, we're just like those people. I'm not going to stand up on some platform, some political platform, on some moral platform, and, and tell people how our country's going down the drain. What I need to do is get in with the people and realize that I'm part of the problem and I need to repent. Some of the issue with Christianity, some of the reason why people don't listen to us is because there have been so many public professing Christian leaders who spend their time, instead of repenting and preaching the gospel to themselves and preaching good news to others simply are ready to pound the pulpit and decry how bad our culture is. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You're just like them. You judge other people, you do the same things. Maybe in different ways, maybe in less obvious ways, but you do the same things. Now, let's just pull aside in verse 7 for a second. If you've read Romans in preparation for this week or read it in the past, you may have bumped up against verse 7 and stumbled over it because Paul says, 
To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they get eternal life. For those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they get wrath and indignation. Verses 7 and 8 sound like Paul is saying, if you do good, you'll go to heaven. And if you do bad, you'll go to hell. And so you can read these verses and think, well, Paul is teaching, he's teaching work salvation. Yes, he's just told the people who think that they're good that they're not as good as they think. But he's teaching work salvation, isn't he? So how do we interpret these verses? One, we can say that he's just being hypothetical. If you really could live a life without sin, you'd go to heaven. And that's true. Adam and Eve would have never died had they not sinned. Maybe that's what he means. And he's just posing that possibility only to pull the rug out from under us and say, but you haven't done it. Or maybe he is saying, if you really put your faith in Christ, if you really realize that you need a Savior, then He'll change your life and you will live differently. And you'll show that you're headed to heaven by the way you live. It's probably that one because He's going to come behind this in chapter 6, 7, and 8 and explain that once we are in Christ, we have the life of God living in us. Our life can be different, should be different, should show that we're going to heaven. But He's certainly not teaching work salvation. He's going to to blow work salvation out of the water in chapter 3. So if you wondered about that, he's either doing one of those two things. Hypothetically saying you could live perfectly and go to heaven, but you haven't. Or saying if you're going to heaven by faith in Jesus, your life will be different and will show it. But back to our main point. Pagans are under God's wrath. Upstanding citizens, though they think that they're doing well, are inside just like the pagans. And finally, religious folks are no better either. He's going to say several times in verses 2.12-3.8 that religion can't save you. Let me just point them out to you. Verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now here's the same kind of thing. sounds like he's saying, Do good works and you'll be justified. You'll be right with God. And again, he's probably saying, If you're right with God, it'll show by your good works. But the point is, the hearers of the law are not just before God. In other words, you can go to church every week and not be saved. Just being religious cannot save you. You have to actually do something with what you hear. Then, verse 17, If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law of God and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? And so on. And he's saying again, you can, you can bear the name Jew, or for us, you can bear the name Christian. You can go about telling everybody that you're a follower of Jesus. But if you don't actually live the life, then it's phony. Religion can't save you. The name Christian can't save you. Being a member of the church and sitting in on all the sermons can't save you. It's wonderful that you've come today. Not very many people would come out for six hours on a snowy day to hear the book of Romans, but you have. But that can't save you. The evidence that you're a Christian is not that you came out today. It's that after you came out today and you heard the gospel that you continue to believe and continue to cling to Jesus. And then he says, verse 25, Indeed, circumcision, the, the outward sign of of the Jewish religion, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. 
But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, if you have the outward symbol of religion, again, for us it's not circumcision but baptism, you've been baptized, well, that doesn't mean anything if you don't actually continue to live like a Christian. Religion cannot save you. Baptism cannot save you. Coming and hearing all the sermons cannot save you. Calling yourself a Christian and boasting that you know all the right answers cannot save you. The stain of sin still remains. Because, as James says, we who rely on religion, we who rely on thinking that we're doing all the things God wants us to do, if we've become a transgressor of the law in just one point, the whole law condemns us. Isn't that amazing? You can keep all the Ten Commandments, but you can come to Romans 13 where Paul says that we should obey the governing authorities, and you can decide, that's not important, I'm going to drive however fast I want to, and you're damned because of it. You keep all the law and fail in one point, and you're damned. And the Jews, by and large, in Paul's day anyway, did not understand that. They thought because they were circumcised, because they were physical descendants of Abraham, because they went and heard the sermons, that they must be right with God, and it simply wasn't so, and it's not so for us. If we boast in the law, we had better realize that the law is what damns us. The law is what condemns us to hell. So then, am I saying, Highland Avenue, Pleasant Ridge, that since religion can't save you, you should just, don't bother coming to church in the morning. It's really not religion that saves you anyway. Well, no, and that's not what Paul is saying. He does say here in chapter 3, verse 1 and following, that religion does have its advantages. The Jews had their advantages. They couldn't. The advantages couldn't save them but they could put them in a place where they could hear the gospel. First of all, he says, verse 2, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Religion can't save you, but religion can put you in a place to be saved. Because when you come to hear the sermons, you do hear God's word. You hear the God, God's word that condemns you and shows you that you need a Savior, and you hear God's word even greater than that that points you to the Savior. The Jews should have been different than they were because they were constantly hearing the stories in the Old Testament that point towards Jesus, like Noah and the ark, that there is one way in that ark, there is one door, and there's a Savior who's coming. Or the story of Isaac being sacrificed and then God placing that ram in the thicket to take Isaac's place. They should have known the gospel. They should have known it by all the sacrifices that they were constantly having to make. They should have known it by the prophecies like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and so on. There is an advantage to being in the religious group. But the advantage isn't an automatic, I must be in the kingdom. The advantage is, because I'm with those folks who hear God's Word constantly, I get to hear it. I get to hear about my sin. I get to hear about the Savior. And it urges me to respond in repentance and faith. Now, pagans, they're obviously condemned. Upstanding citizens, they're just like the pagans. They're just more sophisticated at looking good. And religious folks, of all people, are damned because they're the ones who know everything that God says and they're held even to a higher standard. So, chapter 3, verse 9, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Everyone, as he said back in chapter 1, is condemned. And then he quotes several books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Isaiah, Proverbs, here in verses 
10 through 18 to convince us from the Old Testament that every person is damned. There are some key verses here that are helpful when you witness. They're helpful when you preach the good news to yourself. Verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. Remember that. Verse 12, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Our son was walking into church the other night with me and one of the men in the church said, are you a good boy? And his wife said, that's kind of a not a very good question to ask him, is it? Puts him in a t- tight spot. If he says yes, he's denying the scriptures. If he says no, then this man's just called attention to the fact that he's not a good boy. But that's biblical. His wife is thinking biblically. She's saying to herself, no, he's not a good boy. No one's good. Not even one. Jesus said it. Only God is good. Implication, I'm good. You called me good teacher and I'm God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. All of these are vital verses. Without these verses, without these truths, that no one is righteous on his own. Not even one. There's no gospel. There's no need for a gospel. If it's possible for us to achieve righteousness on our own, then Jesus died needlessly. Now, let me note verse 11b, and I want you to tuck this away in your mind for when we get to chapter 9. There's none who seeks for God. Remember Paul walking along the road to Damascus and God saved him. Was he looking for God? No. He was looking for the Christians so that he could kill them. And he found that his experience was the story of the Old Testament. There is none who seeks for God. Until God comes and seeks us, we will not seek Him. That will be important later. But here what Paul is telling us is the Bible, the Old Testament, which is the Bible that these Romans had, tells us that we're sinners. It just flat out tells us. There's no need for proof. There's no need for evidence necessarily. I don't have to be able to look in the mirror and see my sin. The Bible tells me I am not righteous. I am not good. I do not fear God and I do not seek God. The Bible tells me that whether I think it's true or not. The Bible says it's true. But then, in verses 19 and 20, he's going to say that the Bible also shows us that we're sinners. That's merciful of God. He doesn't just tell us facts that we can't see played out in real life, but he he tells us that we can see them. The Bible shows us. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world become accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin what he's saying here is this when you look at the scriptures they show you that you're a sinner they don't just say you are a sinner but they show you how do they show you they show you by telling you things like you shall not covet don't be jealous of anybody else you read that and you say I've coveted. Honor your father and your mother. Well, there you go. The Bible tells us that. And from the time we're born, we learn how to say, almost from the time we're born, we know how to say, no. And we've broken God's law. You go through the Ten Commandments, you go through any set of biblical standards that you can find, and what you're going to say to yourself is, I haven't done it. And so the Bible not only tells me I'm a sinner, the Bible shows me just by laying out the standard so that I can look at it, put my life up against it, and find out that it's not flesh at all, that I'm doing very 
poorly. And that by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. If you're going to try to save yourself by obeying the law, you haven't looked very closely at the law. You haven't looked very closely at God's standards because when you do, they will show you that you need to just close your mouth and realize that you're a sinner and lay broken, humbled in the dust by God's wrath and judgment just. Very quickly, there's no hope in paganism because the pagans have exchanged the Creator for created things. There's no hope in morality because you're not as moral as you think you are, chapter 2, verse 1. There's no hope in religion because hearing the right things and knowing the right things alone cannot save you. The law can only, chapter 2, verse 20, show you your sin. But it cannot save you. Religion cannot save you. There's none righteous, not even one. No matter what you do, you cannot escape, verse 18, chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against men. You and me among them. That's not the end of the story, and in just a few moments we'll pick it up again. That's the bad news. Let the bad news sink in so that the good news will be as bright and colorful and clear and wonderful as it is the good news of Jesus. Father, thank You for Your Word. Let the truth of sin and the truth of judgment sink in that we might see the amazing grace that comes to us in Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.